Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Helen de Cruz, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at VU University, Amsterdam. Her new book, with co-author Johan de Smet of Ghent University, is A Natural History of Natural Theology, The Cognitive Science of Theology and Philosophy of Religion, which is just out from the MIT Press. Natural theology involves attempts to rationally justify religious belief based on reasoning about experience. The world appears to exhibit order or design, And so, the design argument goes, we are justified in concluding that there must be a divine designer. But what are the cognitive bases of this and other arguments in natural theology? And will revealing the cognitive processes behind these arguments show them to be unjustified or irrational? In their new book, de Cruz and de Smet examine how findings of the cognitive sciences can and cannot be used to draw conclusions about the rationality of religious belief. By examining well-known arguments for the existence of God from the cognitive scientific perspective, they expose the general features of human reasoning that are at work, about cause and effect, about agency, about inference to the best explanation, and so on. They also consider whether theism provides a good reason for the pervasiveness of religious belief across human societies across time, and they argue that the seemingly obvious conclusion that a naturalistic explanation of of religious beliefs demunks those beliefs is not at all obvious. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Helen de Cruz, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello, Carrie. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm excited to talk about our book. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is a book on natural theology and how cognitive science uh, may or may not you know, change natural theology, but at least how recent research into our cognitive processes um, might... Um, you know, certainly will inform and illuminate um, certain aspects of natural theology, and in particular, um, the various arguments for the existence of God that you that you trace um, in the book. Um, so, to um, to begin, uh, maybe you can say a little bit about your background um, as a philosopher um, and how you got to this particular area. Um, and and the genesis of the book itself. So about my background as a philosopher, I actually didn't start out majoring in philosophy. I started out majoring in archaeology and the art of non-Western cultures. And I was particularly interested in how 
uh, the humanities and archaeology in particular could give me a sort of sense about what it is to be human and about how, what made us humans tick. But eventually I grew increasingly dissatisfied with that. I did get, get my PhD in archaeology in 2007, and then I got hired on an interdisciplinary project that was led by Igor Duven in Leuven. Mm-hmm. And there I, I decided, you know, I really want to get into this philosophy, but uh, for that you really need a philosophy PhD. So I did a PhD in philosophy under Igor. And my area is uh, mainly philosophy of cognitive science. So I'm, uh, I'm particularly interested in why people have, uh, how they come up with these things like uh, religion, science, theology, you know, all the sorts of things that we don't really seem to strictly need to survive and reproduce. Right. So why do people formulate things like that? That's, uh, that's my interest and that's what I'm trying to solve that question. Okay, I mean, that is a central press question, certainly in, in archaeology, right? Um, you know, because That's, you do find, uh, you know, evidence of various uh, belief systems and, and worship, uh, you know, throughout, you know, going back tens of thousands of years. Um, in this book, you focus on what is known as natural theology, which is... Uh, various arguments for the existence of God, primarily, you know, the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and so forth. Um, and and you begin the book in a very nice way with a kind of an introduction to natural, a historical introduction to national, to natural theology. Um, you know, wh- where it came from, when when did people start doing this form of theology, and why? So maybe you can. Um, to set up uh, the rest of the interview, maybe you could uh, summarize a little bit of this initial chapter of the history of natural theology itself. So natural theology, actually, there's two senses of it. So on the one hand, there's this broad sense of any form of theology. So finding out things about God and other religious beings just by looking at nature, by things that we can see in nature and that don't, or that we can find out through reason and that don't depend on uh, things like revelation or scripture. Um, on the other hand, there's this more narrow meaning as arguments where the sort of experiences in nature and uh, uh, personal reflections so rational reasoning is used uh, as a way to argue for God's existence. And what we found is that natural theology has an enduring appeal so that across cultures and across times, these arguments keep on cropping up. And you see them, you start seeing them in large scale societies. And I think there's a good reason why uh, we don't see them in small scale societies. I think it's because in large scale societies, there's a lot more heterogeneity in religious beliefs. So that's why people feel compelled to give arguments about you should believe this particular thing and not that particular thing. And that's why you see these arguments. Um, And what we found is that, uh, for instance, the the design argument, you not only see it in ancient philosophy, uh, like, for instance, you see it in uh, Socrates, uh, who is mentioned in Xenophon's memorabilia. But you see it, for instance, also in Hindu philosophy in the uh, in the Middle Ages, or at least what in Europe was the Middle Ages. Uh, and you see it in is, uh, Islamic philosophy. And in the early modern philosophy, you see it coming up again, mm-hmm. 16th century, 17th century. And that argument keeps on cropping up, even though people always seem to have the same objections against the design mm-hmm. argument. Uh, it keeps on re- reappearing. So 
we were interested in the question about uh, how can we explain the enduring appeal of arguments like that? Okay. Um, well, that um, I mean, there's a couple of different uh, uh, different questions there that I could go from there. Um, one is just this idea that they keep cropping up, and then what you just said the the idea that you have very similar objections um, to them, and that that kind of indicates uh, a sense in which. Um, uh, n- nobody's getting persuaded either side. You know that the the people who uh, who who accept the conclusions uh, don't perhaps don't even really need the arguments, um, and the ones that don't accept the the conclusions um, uh, kind of don't need them either because they're not going to be persuaded anyway. Um, so do you do you think that um, I mean? Wh- are we just compelled to kind of keep doing this uh, this exercise in in non persuasive argumentation? Yeah, it does seem like. I mean, when you do see these moves, like for instance against the design argument, there's always the argument about yes, you know that houses need a designer and computers need a designer, but who says that a natural world also has a designer? You can't make that inference. You keep on seeing it. I mean, you have like this Buddhist atomist, uh, Dharmakirti, who has has the same sort of argument as as Hume has. Um, But I'm not persuaded. So I do think that uh, they don't persuade people who don't believe, but actually they do have a function for people who do believe because... Uh It gives them a way to rationally to say, you know, this is not just because I was taught these things as a child, but there's really rational, independent grounds. And that ties that in with something I've said earlier about why we don't really see natural theology in small-scale societies. So we do see, and I think we say this somewhere in Chapter 3, that in small-scale societies, people do have these theological reflective thoughts uh-huh. about, you know, that they think about their own religious systems, but it doesn't crystallize in these arguments because there doesn't seem to be that sort of uh, dialogue between different traditions that have really specialized scholars that think about these things. So whether it's really a, a, a pointless exercise, I think for the religious believer that there is some you know, at least some form of justification, if, if only in turn this justification that they have on the basis of these arguments. Okay. Um, well, uh, before we get into each, some of the, the specific um, cognitive processes involved in, in, in the various arguments, um, you begin with a little conceptual ground clearing, I might say, um, with what, it, what the concept of natural means, and then uh, what the intuition is. Um, so could you, exp- this is, I think, chapter two, or at least early in the book. Um, could you say something about about these concepts of, of what the natural is and what intuition is um, uh, in the book? So the reason that we uh, try to get clear on what naturalness is, is that cognitive scientists of religion have often claimed that religion is natural. And they use that term in many different ways. It's quite interesting. So some people, like Daniel Dennett, for instance, would say religion is natural as opposed to supernatural, that mm-hmm. the fact that people have religious beliefs has just natural causes that are you know, scientifically explicable. 
And then you have people like Justin Barrett who says that it's natural, like in the sense of that it feels natural. It's it's intuitive. And in fact, an, an atheist, that's at least Barrett's idea, uh, is, you know, really has to overcome a lot of intuitions and has to reason in a sort of more reflective way than, uh, than uh, a theist. And there's some empirical work also backing this up that analytic thinking seems to be uh, yeah, conducive to, to atheism. And then you have, you have um, the idea by Robert Macaulay, and that's the idea we look at in more detail, because he, he has this book devoted to why, uh, why religion is natural and science is not. Mm-hmm. And in that book, he discusses about, so he takes uh, naturalness to mean something like maturationally natural, uh, things like, for instance, you have children who uh, learn to talk and they learn to walk, and they do that without any specific instruction. It all goes, you know, like by itself. That's what he means with naturalness. And we thought that was a really promising concept. Uh, he also has the idea of practice natural, which is the sort of skill like naturalness, like driving, playing musical instrument. It feels very natural, but it took you a long while to get there. Mm-hmm. So we, we've sharpened that a bit, and we think that, in fact, religion is not purely maturationally natural. So there's lots of intuitions that we discuss in the book that give rise to um, religious beliefs, like, for instance, teleological intuitions, the idea that uh, things have purposes and that events in your life have purpose, for instance. But at the same time, there's a lot of practiced stuff as well. Like, I mean, in natural theology, obviously, you have all those moves that you do as a theologian. You know, you know the literature, you know what people are going to object uh, when you make certain moves within that field. So we think that a lot of practices in religion are a combination of these two. So that's that's naturalness. Mm-hmm. And then you have intuition, and there's, there's a lot of discussion now in, in philosophy about what intuitions are and whether we really need them. And it does seem to be that lately, uh, did you see that recent graph about the use of intuitions in analytic philosophy, uh, where, where it turns out that intuition talk has really gone up in, in like the past uh, few decades. Um, but nonetheless, we think that, that intuitions have played an important role in, in natural theology, and we just mean with that the sort of processes that go on under the hood. So basically the sort of uh, processes that we're not uh, aware of and that make something, things appear to be true. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, these teleological intuitions. So the idea that when you see a certain thing, uh, like you see a certain object, say cup, for instance, that you say yeah, that, that cup you know, has a purpose, namely to drink from or something, and you just make that very spontaneous. It's not like a conscious inference. So that's basically what we mean with intuitions. Uh, and it's a term that you that is quite continuous. There's a lot of overlap between how philosophers use it. Uh, there's still some distinctions, but so, uh, and the way uh, developmental psychologists use it. So as these sort of seemings that just appear spontaneously. Okay, so... Um I like that that description of of intuition in terms of of processes that that go on under the hood, um, and a, a lot of the book is devoted to to revealing exactly what sorts of of processes those are. Um, and one of one of the things you begin with before getting to actual um, arguments, you know that that part of natural theology um, are the intuitions that we have about God's properties. About what what um, 
what he is like or or she, depending, I suppose, on your on your religious belief. Um, how do we get these? Um, what's what's your explanation about the intuitions of of God's uh, of God's properties? I, and I should say, um, I mean, I'm sort of assuming here some sort of Abrahamic God with you know the the usual suite of omnipotence and uh, omniscience and um, you know all the other uh, you know amazing qualities that that he is supposed to have so that chapter that's chapter three yes actually i mean we were puzzled about something so on the one hand you have as you say these abrahamic properties about omniscience omnipotence and it does seem you know that we wouldn't automatically think that someone would be like that it would seem like that's the sort of thing that you have uh, that's the sort of things that you attribute only after you really have uh, internalized uh, something like Abrahamic theism. But there are these experiments by uh, Justin Barrett and Rebecca Rickert and several other people that seem to show that young children really do seem to think of other people as omniscient and omnipotent. So, for instance, uh, if you ask them uh, about, you have, for instance, in, in a typical experiment, you have a box and the box is clearly a cracker's box. Uh, and they put rocks in the box, and they ask the child, so what's in the box? And they say rocks. And what will your mommy think is in the box? And children starting four or five will say crackers. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they have a false belief. They, they succeed in that. But younger children will say rocks. Mm-hmm. And then if you compare that to the God responses, then it turns out that they keep on saying rocks for God, but they say crackers for mother. Huh. And that's the idea of preparedness. So that's the idea that Justin Barrett and Rebecca Rickett put forward. They say that actually young children are prepared to think about uh, God's uh, omni-properties, which is really quite surprising and puzzling if you think about it, uh, because how, how would evolution have prepared us to think about other people in that way? So it didn't seem to make much sense. But so on the other hand, people do think anthropomorphize God as well. So there's several studies supporting that too. Uh, for instance, if you ask people to, to remember a story where God has to save a boy who's drowning or he boy's praying and God saves that boy, that many people misremember it, saying that God first had to listen to someone else praying before he could attend to the boy. So that seems to suggest that we uh, think of people as limited. So how do you combine these two things? Um, and what we came up with is that actually these two kinds of intuitions are both maturationally natural. So the preparedness ones about where you are inclined to attribute extraordinary properties to someone else has to do with a certain reality bias. So when you think about what other people think reflectively, you think that they're going to uh, know what you know. I mean, often when, when you, for instance, are with someone in conversation, then you have to say, oh, yeah, right, you didn't know yet that I'm saying something, the Oxford Randolph Hotel was on fire. I mean, it was just, it happened to be on fire. So you have to update what other people think. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's also this sort of mood where you um, have to quickly attribute what other people think, so a less reflective mode. For instance, you see a cyclist in front of you and you wonder what's he going to do and then you use more sort of limiting ideas about, you know, what that person can do. And so it turns out that, that even infants, for instance, they 
they already are aware of the fact that people are limited as well. So in that sort of quick uh, decision-making. So we argue that there is a sort of tension between these two kinds of intuitions. And that can explain why even the children do uh, find it natural in some sense to think about God as, uh, you know, omni, uh, omniscient, although not omniscient in a philosophical sense, more about like that he knows what, what they know. Mm-hmm. Um, that at the same time, they also anthropomorphize. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, the, you you discuss Freud a little bit. Um, I think at this at this point, and um, among one of the one of the people who thought that um, uh, that these religious beliefs were just you know sort of in a sense, I guess, anthropomorphizing, extending you know right. beliefs about human you know human properties you know to this to this deity um yeah it's more the case that that freud thinks that we we really wish for someone you know to be a sort of father figure yeah who would would you know watch over us and he sees us as projecting that and and trying to you know fill that in with a god uh yeah yeah so um well, let's look at some of the uh, some of the arguments that you have. Um, you you start um, with the argument from design, which which um, I have found in in my classes anyway to be uh, sort of the the one that people like the most. At least students uh, seem to find that you know, yeah, you've got these other arguments, but th- this is the one that they really think works. If if any of them work. Um, so, of course, you know, from your perspective, you're looking under the hood. What are the processes that um, that give us the intuition that, uh, you know, the inference here, we've got an inference to the best explanation, as you put it, and uh, God is the best explanation, um, and that's our, that's our conclusion. How, how does that, um, how do you, you explain that whole argument and its... Um, it's uh, the cognitive science of that particular argument. Right. So um, it's interesting that you say that your students found this the most appealing argument because we've also found that across cultures, this is really the most widespread. Mm-hmm. The second one being the cosmological argument. So we think that there's two kinds of intuitions that are at work here. On the one hand, you have these teleological intuitions that I've mentioned briefly before. So these teleological intuitions are, is a propensity to see goal directedness Mm. uh, all around you. So for instance, there's this uh, study by Bethany uh, Haywood and Jesse Beering, where they asked atheists about, you know, life events. And spontaneously, they would say things like, you know, I failed that class because I had to learn to overcome adversity or something. Even though before they would say there's no purpose to life or no intrinsic purpose to life, it seems like unreflectively they think that there is purpose. And it does turn out that people suppress this. So very young children are very teleological. They say these things like that clouds are for raining and they like such teleological explanations. Um, And it does turn out that actually it's not totally suppressed because when you put in the time pressure it turns out that adults prefer 
bad teleological explanations like mountains are for climbing and the sun is to keep us warm, that sort of thing. People with Alzheimer's have emergent uh, more teleological uh, beliefs as well. Um, so teleology is really something that happens automatically and that makes us seek purpose. And that's a really important part of the design argument, which after all is sometimes called teleological argument. So next to that, you have also design intuitions, and that's what's called in the literature the design stance. And the design stance is the stance by which you look at something and you see that it was designed to fulfill a certain function or to be a member of a certain class of objects. Now, it turns out that uh, the design stance is something that's very sensitive to background information. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, when you have, um, when you listen to a piece of music and it sort of sounds like modern music, you know, contemporary, classical, and then you're told that it's computer generated, or you're told that some other composer made it, it turns out that people, if you look at the brain areas, the areas that are normally used for, design, for uh, intention attribution and theory of mind, they light up when people think it's uh, made by a composer. Uh, so, and also people have found this with young children. So when they hear that a splash of paint was made unintentionally, then they just say it's a splash of paint. Uh, when they hear it was made intentionally, then they say, I see, you know, I see a bird or I see a sun or I see a bear, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so in the design argument, what people actually do is they take these teleological intuitions, which are automatic and, you know, very hard to suppress. And then they take the design stance, but then they have to take this God element in. They really have to say, and God is the one who designed it. So, so this is one of the things why it is an argument to the best explanation, and it really is an argument. Uh, so there's this passage in, in Hume where he has uh, in the, natu- uh, the dialogues, and he has this proponent of uh, natural theology. I really forgot his name now, Cleanthus, maybe? Yeah, I think it was Cleanthus. Yeah, and he says, you know, uh, observe anatomize the eye, and don't you see, don't you just see that that's designed? Can't you just see it? But the thing is, we don't. We, we can see teleology spontaneously, but we don't really see design spontaneously. So there we really have to make sort of background assumptions about, you know, if you already think there's a God, then it's very natural to assume with that background information, background beliefs, that God is indeed the designer of these things. But if you don't, then there's really no compelling reason uh, to, to do that. And that can explain, I think, I mean, you you, you uh, teach in the U.S., uh, so I'm assuming that you have a highly religious population, um, where, which which could could explain why they find the argument works well. Because if you already start with background information or background belief that there is a God, then this argument works well. Um, yeah, well, that was you know, I mean, inference to the best explanation. One of the questions that I that I raise, or actually, you know, some of the the, the uh, professed atheists in the class raise is, you know, why why is that the best explanation? Why can't we right. just like either just go to evolution or or something else? But uh, uh, it doesn't show, you know, at best, it, you know, they'll say, well, you know, at best we, we say, okay, it's got a purpose and maybe it was uh, there's some, you know, explanation of that design of the of that order um but 
it doesn't get you to God. Right. Um, and, and the response on the part of the students who want to accept the conclusion um, is, well, you haven't not proven that it isn't God. Right. And they're happy with that. Yeah. They're, they're, they're happy. It's like you haven't disproven it as opposed to you've proved it. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so what, what is it that, okay, so there's an extra step there is the, the premises only kind of get you to, uh, at best to some sort of, you know, explanation of the design of, of what you, you know, of, of the order. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't get you to God as the designer. And what is it that makes that the best explanation. Right. I think that, in fact, uh, it doesn't really work as an inference to the best explanation. So it's interesting to note that even Paley, and we were quite surprised when we did some historical uh, looking into, you know, historical work that has been done about Paley, uh-huh. because you think, you know, with Paley, there was just design and God. That right. was it. Uh, I mean, you know, you had chance and God, sorry. So that was it. Uh, but actually, Paley was really quite well aware about, for instance, Buffon, uh, he mentions by name. And he also mentions, but not by name, this sort of um, the idea that you could use Newtonian forces and apply them to biology. And that on the basis of that, you could explain why animals grew in certain ways, for instance. This was very popular in 18th century Germany. And so actually, even Paley, even though he was saying, I'm making an inference to the best explanation here, uh, was actually just, you know, not really considering some of the naturalistic things on the table as uh, plausible life options. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was even saying something like, uh, even, you know, if these explanations work, we'd still need God at, at the end of it somewhere, you would still have to have a designer. Mm-hmm. And that's just because Paley seem to think it very likely that that God existed. Uh, so if, if there were natural things, they would have to have been created at some point. That was his idea. So so ultimately, uh, it is a sort of analogical argument with, with all the problems that that creates. Mm-hmm. Well, so speaking of, you know, had to be, had to have some creator, um, that's sort of, that's the central... Uh, intuition of of the cosmological argument, which is which is sort of your next target, um, and and here you look at um, the intuitions um, driving that argument, uh, which come from the way we reason about causation and about uh, about agency and uh, about uh, some appeal to you know unobserved. Uh, causes of what we do observe um so can you can you give us your take on the on the cognitive science of the cosmological argument right so most cosmological arguments and the one we look at in detail is the kalam cosmological argument which recently got a lot of attention by bill craig and some other people and it's basically the idea uh, that um the universe is temporal the universe has a temporal beginning. Therefore, uh, you, you know, the universe must have had a cause outside of itself. That's one step. 
And then you have the second step, and that is that God is the originator of the universe. So just like with the designing argument, you do have to bring God into the picture at some point, and this is where that happens. So we say there's two kinds of causal intuitions, two kinds of intuitions that drive that argument. On the one hand, you have uh, causal intuitions that we have just about events that happen all around us. So when something suddenly happens, I mean, like, for instance, you have uh, the tragic airplane crash in the Alps, then you automatically think there must have been something that caused it, either a human agency or a defect or whatever. And then you look further and, you know, when you see it's an agent, you do have, then you get a sort of sense of, you know, your your search for causal explanation is satisfied. You think, yeah. Uh, you know, that co-pilot did it and, and so on, right? Um, so it turns out that even infants, when they uh, see something that happens, they do, they expect, I mean, even rats. So this is quite pervasive, I think, in in, in, uh, in mammals at least, uh, that when something happens, when something unexpected happens or something contingently occurs, that there is some external cause to it. And then secondly, uh, it turns out that um, what kind of cause that is, it turns out that young children have this intuition that it's an agent when the cause seems to go from a disordered state to an ordered state. So just to give an example, there have been some experiments by Frank Kyle and co-workers uh, where you have uh, a disordered pile of blocks And then there's two things. Either you have a mechanical thing that makes it look ordered or you have a human hand that makes it look ordered. And it turns out that young children are less surprised by the human hand than by the mechanical device, suggesting that that we do seem to have, when we see something ordered appearing, uh, that we do seem to expect that an agent does that. So that, that's the sort of intuitions that drive the, the cosmological argument. It's also, uh, in, I think, important to say that humans regularly uh, postulate causes for unique events. So you have this human idea of causation, where you have a sort of constant conjunction of effect, events of, of cause and effect, or something that you then see as cause and effect. But it turns out that people, you know, even for things that really are unique or really special, they could still come up with a causal explanation and they do that by regularly by invoking invisible things like for instance why did a bridge collapse well it's metal fatigue or why did they break up well they sort of felt cold towards each other or they fell apart so these are all internal things things that you can't see so that that seems to explain at least to us why the cosmological argument seems plausible why it's often used as an argument that is that it, uh, it draws on the intuition that if there are contingent things happening, that there has to be an external cause, that if uh, that's an ordered state that occurs, that it's an agent, and that it's something, you know, an invisible thing, so easy to invoke. Something like God uh, seems to be something that people can very easily invoke uh, when they think about the origin of the universe. Um, okay, so, um, okay, we've, we've talked about two you know, two of the main arguments. There, there are others that 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 hopefully we get to. Um, but let me just pause to ask something about the the pro- these processes themselves, because I mean, inference to the best explanation and, and causal reasoning uh, in particular um, 
are, you know, critical processes in in the operation of science. Um, and uh, and so it, it would seem that, um, I mean, it's not, to what extent are these, you know, if, if you arrive at a scientific conclusion, right, by, uh, say, inference to the best explanation, right, or some, you know, legitimate use of causal reasoning, um, it would seem that the rationality of, of that conclusion or the justification of it by by referring to a particular process that's that's justified is is undermined if you can use these same processes to arrive at conclusions uh, that are apparently you know not certainly not in a scientific um, probably not naturalistic in any way. Um, so where does this, you know, sort of leave the status of these processes uh, in terms of, you know, justifying any sort of belief, but in particular scientific beliefs? So that's a really difficult question. And I don't know if I can come up with a definite answer. And I don't think we did that in the book either. So certainly... You know, you could have a sort of evolutionary story that goes as follows. You know, if our causal intuitions were widely off track in everyday events, that wouldn't be a good thing. And, you know, our inference to the best explanation, similarly, suppose that were a really bad way of reasoning as usual, that would be really, that would have fatal conclusions. So you could sort of support as kind of common sense, everyday reasoning about, uh, you know, about causal processes and about other things. Um, but so, indeed, we use these things in science, and you could say, is it warranted to use them in such a special domain? We, we come back to this in Chapter 9, where we talk about reliabilism, mm-hmm. uh, and, and where there's the question about, okay, causal intuitions that work in everyday middle-sized objects, way, but they don't really work in quantum way, and they don't really work that well when we think about the beginning of the universe. And so once you start questioning these causal intuitions, then, you know, the whole edifice starts coming down. That's the idea of uh, collateral damage uh, that we mention in the book. Mm-hmm. So we think it, it's not, it doesn't lead to sort of widespread, broad, across-the-board skepticism, since it seems... Uh, it seems unlikely that that would happen. Uh, and then about science, well, so I don't know if you know John Wilkins and Paul Griffith's paper about the million bridges. So they say that basically that science, um, there is some justification uh, for science because science is useful or something like that. So, um, but so I, I don't think that it's, it should lead to a, a widespread uh, skepticism uh, but you can't, on the, on the other hand, cordon them off and say they don't work for religion, mm-hmm. they do work for science. Well, m- mentioning utility, um, I, I actually, this is something that you, I, I don't think you you discuss, at least not at length in the book, is uh, is the utility of, of religious belief. Um, and I'm, I think... You know, some some people have argued, I think, in social psychology about the uh, the function of religious belief in terms of um, social cohesion, or you know, something along those lines. So that 
there's a sort of evolutionary utility to uh, to holding certain beliefs, not, not because they may in fact be true, but because um, they promote um, the coherence of a particular group, and that in turn, you know, helps the fitness of the group and of the members in it. Um, do you do you see uh, that sort of justification? Uh, for why we use these generally reliable processes. And then in certain cases, like in the case of natural theology, uh, we kind of use them in these, in, in these sort of uh, odd ways. Um, in, in science, for the most part, they're reliable, but then in this other domain, we kind of go off the rails Um do you see that that I don't know if you would describe it that way, but um, do you would you support that sort of a justification for why uh, we'd be using processes that you know have a, a very important role in in science and in, in truth uh, truth seeking uh, enterprises? Um, you know why we'd use those same ones in these in these other domains, which are a lot more dicey. Um, and the justification there is, of course, a, a naturalistic one of, well, you know, maybe the particular beliefs that they uh, that they produce are not justified, but the social context that they help create provides some sort of other justification for using these processes in these in these ways. Right. Uh, I think that in, in chapter six we discuss briefly why people, for instance, connect morality to God, and there we we say that in fact uh, the reason that we do that is not that there is a, some sort of intrinsic link between morality or and God, or not at least obviously so, but that it's just the case that we come from these cultures that have a really successful systems where, you know, big, watchful, punishing deities uh, have been connected to moral norms. Mm -hmm. So that people, uh, you know, we just all, I mean, most listeners, I think, of this interview will have been raised in a culture like that. And that's why we make this intuitive connection between um, God and, and, and uh, uh, morality. Um, but so the question about whether you could practically justify that. So my sense is, uh, you know, analytic philosophers of religion would really balk at, <laughs> at this idea about, you know, it might all be false, but, you know, at least it keeps society together. I think anthropologists would be more sympathetic to that idea. Um, I think I'd be inclined to go with, uh, you know, people like Azim Sharif, uh, who have argued that and, and also experimentally shown that secular institutions can actually fulfill that role. So, for instance, you have um, the sort of uh, altruism within the group that religion supports, not altruism outside of the group, quite often the opposite. Mm. Uh, but you can actually do that by having a functioning social security system, for instance. And actually, it turns out that these systems do do quite a bit better. I mean, I live now 
in the Netherlands, which has a lot less inequality than the United States, and it's very secular. This is one of the most secular countries, I think, in the EU. Um, and it can do that by an effective uh, you know, uh, government that does these things. So whether these things are pragmatically justifiable, is, I think it's a terribly mixed bag. So on the one hand, it does turn out that people who go to church um, and, and do things like, you know, that they are happier uh, and they, they have higher life satisfaction. On the other hand, it turns out that religion collectively uh, isn't as effective an instrument as some instruments that are developed by, you know, industrialized nation states. So I, I, I don't know if, if that would be sufficient pragmatic justification for religion. Um, well, so do you know of a study, maybe, where uh, is, is there a correlation between, uh, say, um, higher, uh, a higher church-related or higher belief and a lower or less secure secular safety net? There's, yes, there, there's several correlational studies off the top of my head. I can't say, I mean, maybe Zuckerman did that, and maybe Azim Sharif, but I can't really say for sure. But there seems to be a correlation between um, the Gini index, I think, the inequality index and religiosity, which would support why the United States, even though it's a very rich country, nonetheless is... is uh, is quite religious, and why, for instance, the United Kingdom is more religious than, than the Netherlands. Hmm. So there, there is this correlation. There seems to be this trade-off. I mean, you have something, I mean, if you think about uh, functionalism in, in anthropology, uh, you could have several things playing a certain functional role of, you know, promoting group cohesion and altruism, and religion can do that, secular institutions can do that. Uh, but maybe it's difficult to achieve both of those things within one society. I don't know about that, though. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, it's... Um, let me ask another question that you also, um, if you don't mind, uh, you, you, you don't address, at least not directly in the, in the book, which is uh, the role of, of affect or emotions. Um, uh, your cognitive science deals with you know, basically reasoning strategies. Um, but I've also wondered... Because of the prevalence of you know of what are sometimes called you know God of the gaps arguments, where you know if you don't know something or you're not certain about something or there's an something cries out for an explanation, um, and so you have God in there, right? God is the explanation, um, and it almost seems as if, and I'm just speculating wildly. Um, it almost seems as if we need, we, we have this, you know, affective need for an explanation. Anything, anything is better than uncertainty. And so uh, we fill that gap, that need for an explanation uh, with God, and that, that calms us down. Um, you don't discuss affect, right, in, yeah. in the book. But if, so I'm wondering, <laughs> where, where do you see... Uh, affect coming into into this whole thing? I think we discuss it a little bit in chapter 7 about mm -hmm. static arguments where we talk about the emotion of awe. Uh -huh. because, yeah. So there have been several studies showing that people um, when they get sense of awe so there's this one study I think by a group uh, by Saruglu and colleagues 
where people either see the birth of a child, which is something really awe-inspiring, or a vast landscape, you know, of beauty, or, you know, a humorous video about someone explaining how to make beer or something like that. <laughs> and it turns out that people who see the awe-inspiring video, that they also report more religiosity later on. Uh, some people have speculated that uh, the awe provides a sense of uncertainty because awe is very closely related to fear as an emotion, but it's not quite fear. So it's sort of like this, this sense of humility and fear-like sense that make people want to, you know, um, reduce their certain their uncertainty. So they did find as a covariate uncertainty reduction. So there does seem to be something in uh, the idea that that is sort of looking for an explanation drives natural theology. If you read um, natural theologians like uh, Aquinas or Anselm, then you do see that effect shining through. I think we we didn't discuss this in detail because you you have to put some some boundaries. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's definitely something in that. But on the other hand, I don't know if the God of the gaps argument is, is, is really the only explanation for why people do natural theology. So it could also be, so that there's a bit of a, of a an, in the cognitive science of religion, people aren't really, quite sure about how people see the relationship between naturalistic explanations and uh, religion. So some studies seem to suggest that people see them intuitively as in a position. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when, when you give someone a really bad sci- scientific explanation, then they become more creationist in their responses, for instance. So that seems to suggest that people see this sort of thing about if it's not scientific, then it's religion, sort of like God of the gaps. But on the other hand, there's Christine Legare's work that suggests that people spontaneously, they're just pluralistic. You know, they have scientific explanations, religious explanations. These things are all part of their, you know, the ontology which they got from childhood. And they just use that in any way they can to make explanations. And so then natural theology isn't really God of the gaps or shouldn't always be that, but just be sort of combining things you know about science, say something like Big Bang Theory, and combining that with, you know, the religious beliefs you have, like, for instance, Abrahamic theism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let, let me get back to, uh, you mentioned Chapter 9 before, and I did want to um, to get to that chapter in particular because uh, it addresses what might be, well, certainly one of the fundamental questions, which is, you know, when you look at the cognitive science of religion, um, uh, it, does this end up debunking the religious beliefs? I mean, um, you know, show that they are just, you know, actually not justified and, you know, give a natural naturalistic explanation leads to showing that these beliefs just do not have any rational justification. And you, you actually, I mean, you give a very subtle discussion of of that point um uh in which as i take it you you sort of show well um both sides you know the theistic side and then the you know i guess denetian naturalistic side um they, they both kind of end up saying you know that the other side has the burden of proof 
Um, And so there ends up being kind of a stalemate on the question. So maybe you could, you know, maybe you could say something about about how you get to that that conclusion in that in that final chapter. Yeah, so we've seen commonly in the literature two ways in which people combine cognitive science and religious beliefs. So there's not much yet on cognitive science and then what the implications has for philosophy. But when you do see discussion, it's it's usually focused on that. So on the one hand, you have a sort of debunking route where people say that the cognitive processes that yield religious beliefs are off track. So, for instance, you have overactive tendency to see teleology. Uh, therefore, you know, you don't know, you can't trust that those beliefs are true. And on the other hand, you have more vindicating arguments that say that, you know, uh, and this is the, the, what Kelly Clark and Justin Barrett do. They have a sort of reason defense. They say, yeah, you know, these everyday cognitive causal cognition works well in everyday life and moral intuitions. It seems that it works well, that we think it's morally wrong to torture puppies. And that's objectively true. And so we have all these intuitions that work well in everyday life. And so, uh, you know, why shouldn't we use those then in natural theological arguments? We could do that just as well. But one of the problems here is you can't really, in order to say whether those processes are truth conducive or, uh, or not, you'd have to fix the type process. And that's, that's a generality problem for reliabilism. The question is, how do you fix the type process without already you know, making all sorts of assumptions about uh, what the conclusion is going to be? Take, for instance, if you take a cosmological argument... You have those causal intuitions that say that every contingent event has a cause. And then if you take the Redian route, you could say, well, it's reliable in everyday life. So it's also, you know, why shouldn't we trust it when we think about the origin of the universe? But you could also say, well, the origin of the universe is a really special event. And once you leave the middle-sized object world, these causal intuitions don't work well. So the cosmological argument is incorrect. I mean, that's actually, I mean, if you have Darwin's doubt, Darwin who wondered, can a monkey's mind really have these sort of ideas? Then he was actually talking about the cosmological argument. He wasn't speculating about uh, beliefs in general. So the problem is uh, you can't really say whether, I mean, without already assuming the conclusion, you can't really say whether those processes are off track or on track. So that's why we're quite pessimistic about using cognitive science of religion to really adjudicate about whether these arguments work or not because of this generality problem. Um, okay, yeah. So, uh, and that kind of gets back to one of, the, one of the questions that I had raised, I think, at the beginning, which is, uh, is does this debate, you know, it seems like it will just keep, keep going on, Without either side being being persuaded, or or um, is is that just something that we need to accept, or is there, uh, or or is there some way in which there might be some adjudication between the two sides that, or, or some neut- maybe some neutral evidence or neutral way of typing the processes, uh, or or is this just you know, sort of. Well, this is this is a practice that 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 people do, and and that's an end of it. 
I think that that's actually the way you characterize it. It's actually <laughs> going to happen. People are just going to continue, you know, the way they are and raising similar objections and counter objections, you know, basically just always taking our in unreflective intuitions that are used in natural theology mm-hmm. in a reflective way and then questioning them because once they're there, you know, on the table, you can start questioning them. And uh, so we, we, we have a paper that's coming out in, in a in uh, a book that I'm co-editing with Ryan Nichols, where actually we we uh, have a quantitative study of more than 800. Um, this is also in the book in Chapter 5. More than 800 philosophers. And we asked them, you know, what do you think about the cosmological argument, the argument from design, the argument from evil? And it turns out that people's ideas about that correlate very strongly with the, whether they're theists or atheists or agnostics, very strong correlation. Mm-hmm. And there's no difference between philosophers of religion and, uh, you know, non-philosophers of religion. The correlation is just as strong. Mm-hmm. So that, that does seem to suggest that people use, um, well, that, that the, the way you describe it, that these sort of moves and counter-moves are just going to continue depending on what people already believe. It's it's kind of a, a depressing thought in a way because it, it feeds into the perception that um, uh, philosophy doesn't progress. Oh, oh dear, yeah. Well, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I mean, take for instance, you have all this new cosmological stuff about you know that purports to say the universe doesn't have an origin or, or originated in itself or something like that. I mean, that's more data, obviously, but you could still interpret it anyway. And at least if my Facebook philosophy of religion friends are any indication, they were totally unimpressed by that. Um, so, so we do get more data and we do get more sophisticated ways of arguing. Um, and ultimately, I think that's, that's not, not a bad thing. I mean, if you, if you want to, Defend if you want to have more rational beliefs, then it does help to think to to have good arguments for those beliefs. Mm-hmm. I think, but you know, given that there's this big role of confirmation bias, there is a worry whether you know this is epistemically bad on a, on a large scale. That's a different question from whether it could be individually rational, given what you believe that you act in a certain way or you respond to these arguments in a certain way. Right. Um, okay, well, I think um, we're sort of getting towards the, the end of our hour. And um, so I just wanted to, to ask uh, what you're, if, or if you're working on a, a further uh, project along the same lines or if you are uh, going into a different direction. Do you, do you intend to follow this, follow up this book pretty closely or expanded to something else? So what I'm currently doing is I've just finished a British Academy postdoc at Oxford and I've done lots of empirical uh, studies in uh, philosophy of religion. So basically experimental philosophy of religion. What do philosophers of religion believe and how does this correlate? For instance, how do they think about religious disagreement and things like that? And that's what I'm working on now. So I'm now, we've been talking a bit about the worry that, you know, there's sort of irrelevant influences that, you know, you're not the theist because the arguments are so rational, but because of your beliefs that you have when you grew up. So I'm studying that by uh, a qualitative survey, for instance. So that's one thing I'm doing. 
And another thing I'm hoping to do in the near future is to work on the psychology and philosophy of testimony. So I'm wanting to, uh, there is already something on testimony in chapter 8 on miracles. And there's the question about when can we trust testimony and is testimony a basic source of knowledge or does it require further justification? Can you just trust anyone or do you have to have positive reasons to trust them? And uh, what I want to do is look at the psychology of testimony, which is a rapidly expanding field, and to see what that can tell us about these philosophical questions. Interesting, because I've just been talking with one of my classes about testimony and um, uh, epistemic injustice and uh, various um, impediments to the transmission of, of testimony. Um, so it'll be interesting. I'll be very interested to see what what sorts of uh, psychological or insights into testimony we have from from cognitive science. Yeah, I think that will be interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think we are just about uh, out of time. Uh, so I just want to uh, thank you for for taking the time to discuss your your new book. And, thank you. Um, I wish you luck with the with the uh, experimental stuff, and I look forward to um, to perhaps talking with you again. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Helen De Cruz about her new book, A Natural History of Natural Theology: The Cognitive Science of Theology and Philosophy and of Religion, which she wrote with Johann De Smet. And that is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.